One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey y'all, Ryan Sprague here. As you all know, the Somewhere in the Skies podcast is always free to consume, but it isn't free to create. That's why I've started the Somewhere in the Skies Patreon campaign. On a monthly basis, you give what you think the show is worth. You'll be helping the show continue, grow, and to be something truly communal. And remember, there are rewards for each level of contribution, and the list is only growing. So please, help Somewhere in the Skies now by becoming a patron. To contribute and to learn more, visit www.patreon.com backslash somewhere skies. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Today on the show, Rob Christofferson. That's right. It's volume four of UFO Happy Hour. Folks, if there's one thing that you need to remember, you never flash a flashlight at a UFO. It didn't end well for the Allagash guys, and it sure as hell didn't end well for Terry Lovelace. (laughs) This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. All right, today I have my favorite guy to pull up a bar stool with after a long day of work for UFO Happy Hour, and that is Rob Christofferson. Rob, how you doing, my man? I'm, I'm doing good. How are you? I am good, man. Coming off the heels of World UFO Day. Happy World UFO Day. Yeah, same to you, man. It's, uh, it's a glorious day, you know, and it falls in line with, you know, the general uh, time scale for when the Roswell crash happened. So, you know, it's festive. It's it's a very festive week here. It is very festive. Well, speaking of that, what are you drinking today for happy hour? So I toned it I toned it down a little bit. Uh it's okay. still we're still drinking beer, but it's root beer. And not not just any root beer. It's Saranac root beer. The Ooh. best root beer around. Seriously, folks, if you don't if you you got to get your hands on this root beer. It's it's great. It's not it's not like mug where it'll where it's like very it'll leave you gassy. This <laughs> this doesn't do that. I couldn't agree more being from uh upstate New York myself. Like that's what I grew up on, man. And I actually I actually went on like a root beer excursion throughout the country when I was uh in my younger days acting on the road and I would try a root beer in every like city and town I went to. That was like my thing. And it was it was really cool. I got to try all these local brews and everything, but I always came back to Saranac. That was always my favorite. Yeah, you you really can't go wrong with it. And I mean, you you don't li- you grew up not far from where they brew the stuff. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. Well, good. Well, okay. So I guess I'm the alcoholic of the two of us today. <laughs> um, I have with me. I found this beer at a craft beer bar here in New York, and. Dude, I was stunned when I saw it. So about a month ago, I covered the um, 
the Herb Shermer incident on the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, they had a beer that was coming out commemorating the event, and I found it here in New York City. Oh, and, no way. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was stunned when I saw it in the refrigerator. It comes from Broken Bose Brewing Company, and it's called, you'll like this, the Star Snake Dank IPA. Ah, that's great. <laughs> and I'm sure you get the reference. It's inspired oh, yeah. by the emblem that yep. Shermer remembers seeing on the uniforms of the aliens that, in, <laughs> that invited him aboard their craft. So I, I was just astounded. So I've got it in front of me. Um, I'm going to pop it open as we get into our conversation here. But um, happy World UFO Day, Rob. And I'm glad you brought up the Roswell incident when it came to that because I wanted to know where this all came from. People just started sort of posting this on their social networks and everything everything and i wanted to know where did world ufo day come from and um al jazeera actually did a pretty good write-up on this um so i'm just gonna run through this briefly if you don't mind oh yeah man yeah a little uh, crash course here on world ufo day um it's defined by the world ufo day organization uh aptly <laughs> The World UFO Day is a day dedicated to the existence of UFOs. It aims to raise awareness about the existence of UFOs and with that intelligent beings from outer space, encouraging people to think about the possibility of us not being alone in the universe. Um, It's also a way to encourage governments to declassify their files on supposed UFO sightings. And you'd mentioned Roswell. Um, So originally, World UFO Day was celebrated on June 24th, date of um, Kenneth Arnold's sighting. What they ended up doing is they wanted to merge two of the most sort of famous events at the time, Kenneth Arnold and Roswell, and just have it in July, you know when everyone's out doing their barbecues and it's 102 degrees out and you're drinking a cold beer. So I thought that was pretty cool. And um, now we know where World UFO Day came from. So thank you, Al Jazeera. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You just got learned, people. (laughs) You got learned. (laughs) Well, you've been doing a lot of learning too lately, man. I've been following you on Twitter and it's been such an amazing, enlightening time for your Twitter feed. My God. You can always tell when Rob is really getting heavy into his research because you start posting all these, like, photos no one's ever seen before (laughs) from all these, like, books from, like, 10, 20, 30 years ago. So I love it, dude. Oh, yeah, man. It's – I I get giddy with the research because we have – more resource resources than ever. I mean, online, in books, and, like – Hindsight's, you know, 2020, man, Uh, especially right now where we are Mm -hmm. in 2019, looking back on all these incidents and stuff, it's um, it's been kind of a a really fun learning experience. I can imagine. And again, it's so exciting following someone like you on Twitter, especially us UFO researchers who get so, you know, dogged down with dates and times and, you know, this, that, debunking this. And it gets so like. It can be draining and kind of boring, to be honest. So when you see someone like you excited to dig into these old cases, like it just reinvigorates everyone in the community. So I got to thank you for that, first of all. Well, uh, you know, it's it's fun and I love sharing the wealth, so uh, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> good, good. And, you know, you did bring up a good point. We're in 2019 now. There is a lot going on when it comes to, to the stars and uh, a tip, these revelations, which we'll get to towards the end here. But 
everyone is looking at this now from a military angle, you know, with the Navy and everything. But there's all these cases involving people that aren't part of the military. So we have to keep that in mind when we're looking at this, that most UFO sightings were not seen by the military. And um, that sort of comes in the form of one of the ones I wanted to talk with you about first here, and that is this Brazilian kick you've been on lately. <laughs> so what cases really stick out to you? How did you, how did, and how did this lead you to um, what I saw you posting about recently about the 1954 French UFO flap? I have a Brazilian friend, her name is Fabi, and she kind of like reinvigorates my love for Brazilian UFO cases because they're really, really kind of extreme in many ways. Uh, to give kind of a comparison, uh, in July, or uh, June 24th, you know, 1947, Kenneth Arnold sees the nine objects. Well, a month after that, Brazil has its first humanoid sighting. So while we're just seeing UFOs in the sky, Brazil's seeing some really extreme stuff. Uh, the first uh, humanoid sighting in Brazil was by a man named Jose C. Higgins. He sees this craft and he sees these really tall, uh, really weird looking aliens get out. They're kind of they, they want him to come aboard their ship but he doesn't want to and he tries to convince them that you know he's he, he's got a family here he doesn't want to go anywhere so <laughs> the aliens leave him alone and then they just start frolicking around for whatever reason it's very reminiscent kind of of like uh the kelly hopkinsville encounter or uh if you're fav familiar with the uh, mojave incident um, yes yeah where they were just these really strange looking beings they were just like they described them as frolicking around and and <laughs> you know childlike in a, in a certain way but uh i uh i decided i wanted to do uh some cases from uh brazil and um there's always kind of like three classic ones that always come to mind there's the abduction of antonio vs boas right. there's the uh Colares, uh, sightings uh, in 1977, which is where we get uh, the uh, chupas from, mm -hmm. the re rectangular-looking UFOs that supposedly uh, shot beams down at people and hurt them. And uh, the third one is the Virginia incident in 1996. But uh, I was just perusing old issues of Flying Saucer Review online, and they really provided the most in-depth coverage of the Antonio Villas-Boas incident. So anytime I would see Olavo Fontes, uh, who is a Brazilian doctor, he was the uh, APRO representative, Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. Anytime I'd see an article by him, I'd just pull it. And there's one from 1961, and it's called Brazil Under UFO Survey. And it's just, you know, perusing it a little bit. And there is a line that uh, – a sentence that says, The sightings followed a straight-line pattern first discovered by Amy Michel in France in 1954. See his book, Flying Saucers and the Straight-Line Mystery. And I just got really curious, like, straight-line mystery. What the hell are you talking about, man? Mm -hmm. <laughs> UFOs and straight lines? That's kind of weird. <laughs> so I uh, – I kind of put it aside a little bit and did some research on the Brazil stuff. And uh, it was probably like 
I don't know, a month, month and a half ago, I, I stumbled across this blog post that's about a really strange law that was passed in France in 1955 that basically banned UFOs from flying over this town. It's called <laughs> Chateauneuf du Pape. It's in southern France, and it was in response to this 1954 flap in France. And it was kind of the first flap that featured humanoids. And what people often described seeing was these short three to four foot tall humanoid beings. They were wearing what they called diving suits, Mm -hmm. just these metallic looking suits that was reminiscent of, you know, the stuff before Jacques Cousteau came along and gave us the scuba gear and all that good stuff. And they were often seen in near small craft, oftentimes working on it. And... One thing that uh, they also reported that was kind of startling is that these UFOs would paralyze these people Mm. many times, more often than not, which kind of relates to some of the stuff that goes on in Brazil. But uh, it was in that that I really just got interested in in this straight-line mystery thing. So I ended up finding a copy of Amy Michelle's Flying Saucers and the Straight Line Mystery. Not a cheap book if you want to find it, folks. I think I paid, like, I haggled with an eBay seller to get it down to, like, $30. <laughs> you were the but king of that, by the way. I, I try. I do my best. I but, am extremely uh, envious of your UFO library. <laughs> it's just, you know, you you get a tip and it's like, oh, hey, I got to go find that book. So. I know, man. It's, it's an addiction. It really is. It is. And, you know, a lot of books aren't in print these days or they're through, you know, publishers that are very dubious that I'm not really totally safe with. But Very good point. Yeah. yeah. But uh, what you find in France in 54 and and I give a lot of respect to the independent investigators because that's where most of this information comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, this stuff was investigated by Amy Michelle and I think one other guy and they collected over... I want to say 400 reports and the, and then like the reporting was so good that Amy Michelle was actually able to take UFO sightings on a certain day and able to track it. And they would always go in these straight line patterns from, you know, place to place, to place, to place. And, uh, the timeframe generally matched up and everything. And, uh, he, this book is mostly about, you know, plotting all of this along and and giving you all of these uh, UFO sightings. Um, And if you want kind of a teaser on many of these sightings, all you have to do is go to Passport to Magonia, and Jacques Vallée has a lot of them in there. Mm, Interesting, okay. Yeah, but uh, it, it was so fascinating to see that he was able to, that the reporting was so good that he was able to track that in straight line patterns and uh alavo fontes was able to do the same thing in brazil uh he was noting in 1957 and 1960 that uh with the ufo sightings that they were getting they were moving in straight lines and uh he has some very interesting graphs uh, <laughs> in in flying saucer review and it, it looks like a jumble of like lines and stuff but uh they're it's all in straight line patterns and uh, Amy Michelle is also able to link that to the 1957 flap in the United States that uh, uh, includes the famous uh, 
Loveland sighting in Texas that uh, was kind of around the time when UFOs started shutting off car engines. Right. What's interesting about that, and um, it kind of it kind of begins with Antonio V.S. Boas himself, but it has this. It's almost like an analog kind of way because when you look at his abduction account, it's very. There isn't a lot of like real authentic high strangeness to it. Mm-hmm. When he, uh, he eventually, like to, to go into the basics of it, Antonio Villas-Boas, he was a 23-year-old farmer. And uh, he was living on his family farm at the time. He was plowing a field at 1 o'clock in the morning, as you do when you're living in Brazil, (laughs) because it's hot as hell. And uh, he had seen UFOs on uh, previous occasions, including the night before. But he sees this red light in the sky. It comes down really fast, and it kind of cuts his uh, tractor off from the, the road leading to his house to actually get away from it. And he makes this split-second decision that he's going to try to, you know, outrun it anyway. His tractor dies, unfortunately. So he makes a run for it. Doesn't make it long before he gets tackled by a short humanoid. And he said it came to about his shoulder. And he pushed it away. And he continued running and made it about 20 feet before he was tackled by three more figures. They dragged him on board a UFO. They stripped him naked. They... Took blood from his chin, which seems like a really odd place to take blood, but, you know, we'll go with it. Uh, He had uh, sex with a female alien being, or at least that's how he claims it. Yeah, he Uh, did, yep. Yep, and not once, but twice, yeah. (laughs) So this was not a one-night stand. No, you know, it it was, uh, he had some very personal feelings when she rejected him the third time, but, you know. Uh, you'll you'll have that. Uh, uh, he's so but, sensitive. He is. He's very sensitive. Uh, but they also toured him around the UFO, and then um, they uh, let him out and took off. And apparently, he was on this UFO for like four and a half hours. Okay. But what he found when he went back to his tractor is that when he tried to start it up, he couldn't. And then when he looked in the engine, he just realized it's that one of the battery terminals was unplugged. Mm. So it's very like it's almost like a proto kind of abduction because it's not really there isn't a lot of there isn't psychic elements to it. He claimed that the beings he interacted with, um, they had a very primitive language They that he said they sounded like dogs barking almost. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, it's. Uh, it kind of starts right there with Antonio V.S. Boas, and then after that, you start to see flood of reports of UFOs shutting off cars. It's very weird. Yeah, it is yeah. weird. And the thing that always stuck out to me about his case is this happened you know, well before the um, Betty and Barney Hill case, am I correct? Yeah, four, yeah. Years. four years. Four years. So there you go. I mean, everyone thinks that they were sort of the start of this phenomenon that was starting to pop up everywhere but yeah you bring up a good point though you know it was pretty pretty straightforward in some respects but um that that almost says more to me that he's not uh, he's not exaggerating anything he's like this is what happened this is what i saw and this is how they 
communicated. So, yeah, fascinating case. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, uh, they didn't believe him. When they when he went in, uh, Fontes had his reservations, and uh, there was a journalist that he initially got in contact with named uh, Joe Martins. He, uh, he kind of... He was the uh, kind of the UFO journalist for this uh, magazine called O Crucero, mm-hmm. I think is how it's pronounced. But he didn't believe his story at all. And either this guy is really imaginative because when you read his affidavit, it's like a 13-page affidavit. It is full of so much detail. The guy didn't really miss a beat and he did he had conscious recall of everything so mm-hmm. it that makes it stand out um uh, as a very strange kind of abduction that almost seems more human kind of in a way like yeah, the yeah. perpetrators may have been human but uh, and there's conspiracies like that but uh, yeah it's a it's a very strange case the whole Brazil thing, there's so much rich UFO history when it comes to Brazil, so I'm glad someone's seeking it out. I do want to go back for a minute, though, Rob. You brought up these laws in France. Um, I gotta read these really quick, if you don't mind. Yeah. This is hilarious. Yeah. Okay, so... In 1954, here's the law. The overflight, the landing, and the takeoff of aircraft known as flying saucers or flying cigars, whatever their nationality is, are prohibited on the territory of the community. Article 2. Any aircraft known as flying saucer or flying cigar, which should land on the territory of the community, will immediately be held in custody. (laughs) Article 3. The forest officer and the city policeman are in charge, each one in what relates to him of the execution of this decree. So, there you go, man. City policemen are in charge if a UFO lands. It's fun to watch these laws pop up in, like, random places that have to do with, like, UFOs. Um, Washington, there's a county in Washington that has a Bigfoot law Mm -hmm. that basically says if they... um, when they examine the animal, if it turns out to be more human, you're going to be charged basically with manslaughter. So, (laughs) well, and we know John Greenwald too, over at the black vault, he's found many documents throughout history where like either the army or like the fire department, there's like contingency plans. If a UFO is found, it's crazy. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Um, there was, uh, before Dave Politis became the missing 411 guy, his thing was uh, researching uh, Bigfoot. He ended up staying uh, and interviewing uh, many of the Hoopa people, mm-hmm. which uh, are in Northern California, getting their statements. But uh, in the beginning of his book, it's called The Hoopa Project, he talks about how there's a um, – uh, I want to say there's like a U.S. – Army Corps of Engineers map that has Bigfoot on it and listing it as like a potential threat to like deforestation and you know like mm. like it would we would be like a threat to them if we decided to deforest in certain areas so it was kind of interesting and then it has kind of a funny uh cartoon underneath it and it says something like um Bigfoot does not exist and we shouldn't be putting stuff in there like that or something like that. It's kind of funny. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, Bigfoot's making a comeback lately in the mainstream media too. So 
Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, well, the, one of the other cases Rob I wanted to cover with you here is <laughs> you tweeted recently about a case in New Jersey back on uh, back in our neck of the woods here that involved a hefty amount of aliens. So can you maybe run us through this case and what you found most interesting about it? Oh yeah, this um, this is a fun little case from 1975, like uh, a whole nine months before the Travis Walton abduction, and uh, um, it. I first uh, first read about it in Bud Hopkins' Missing Time, and it's in this like park in uh, North Bergen, New Jersey. Now, if you're in Manhattan and you're standing on uh, West 89th Street. Mm-hmm. You can look across the Hudson River and you can see kind of the landmark and the area where this happened. It happened near uh, this circular apartment building called the Stonehenge, which uh, at the time it was pretty it was pretty much brand new. It wasn't open that long. It was very modern looking. I mean, looking at it now, it's it's not like you have many round apartment buildings these days, but right. uh it's uh, and if you want to get really technical, it's New Jersey's forty-second tallest building. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, man. Doing the deep research. Oh yeah, but um, uh, basically, Bud Hopkins at the time in nineteen seventy-six, or sorry, nineteen seventy-five, November nineteen seventy-five. He he has a studio right across the street from this liquor store and. As he would, you know, would have it, he would go at the end of the day. You usually go over buy a bottle of wine or something like that, uh, something bougie. Because I mean, it's Bud Hopkins; he's an artist. You know, yeah, it's man. just, it's just, yeah, it's just his nature. And yeah, <laughs> he, uh, he rolls in sometime in mid November of 1975, and the guy at the counter, his name's George Obarski. He's uh, he's co-owns the building. He's mumbling about um, you, you never know when something's going to come out of the sky near you and startle you and stuff like that. And, you know, it catches Bud Hopkins' attention. Now, this is November 75, so if I'm I'm wondering why this guy's babbling about this. I'm wondering if, you know, he may have saw something about Travis Walton mm. because it was, you know, around this time, so... But, you know, starts asking him, you know, a little bit about this. And, you know, it's a busy, uh, a busy uh, liquor store. So he comes back. He's got his recorder. And George Obarski tells him this story about how in January of 75, he's closed up shop. He's driving home. He lives in North Bergen, New Jersey. And he cuts through this park called the North Hudson Park. And it's just kind of this random park. Uh, it's, it stands out in, in the middle of a, a big city, but it's got uh, playing fields of all kinds. It's got mm-hmm. a little lake in it, and it's right across from this uh, apartment building called the Stonehenge. So he's cutting through the park on his way home when he sees this really bright light coming past him, uh, basically keeping pace with his car, and it lands in a field nearby. Now, George stops his car, and he and he just watches it. And this object, it's like 30 feet long. It's very weird. It's like a dome, kind of. 
kind of structure with these windows that are all around the side. Mm -hmm. And he sees this ladder come down and these 10 alien beings getting out. He described them pretty much as like short grays. And they're all carrying a small shovel and a bag. (laughs) And they all start digging in the ground and they fill up these bags and it's very kind of robotic they're very systematic in the way that they do this and they got the job job done within four about four minutes and then boom the craft takes off so obarski's naturally shaken up he uh goes home he takes a, a couple aspirin and he tries to fall asleep and, and eventually does next morning goes out Goes to this park and he's thinking that it must have been a dream or something like that. Yeah. And he goes and he finds 15 holes in the ground around the area where these aliens were digging the ground up. Mm. And he pops a couple more aspirin. He's a little more nervous. And, uh, you know, he kind of keeps it to himself for. Uh, he did. He literally didn't tell anybody, including his son, who was living with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, until that day when Bud, Cop- Bud Hopkins comes in. And Bud Hopkins, you know, this is his early days as an investigator. And he's like, well, I need resources. So he contacts Ted Blocker and uh, a guy named Jerry Storer, I think is his name. He was a member of MUFON. And they investigated the hell out of this case. They found... An eyewitness at the Stonehenge apartment building that worked the door who saw a light on that night. And apparently um, around the time that this craft was departing, it ended up they heard like a sound. He heard like a sound wave or something like that. And it shattered part of the glass on the front door of the building. (laughs) Yeah. And. Prior to this incident, about a week before that, there was a family a few blocks down that saw this weird object pass by their window. They were so, you know, amazed by it. They all ran outside their house. Some of them weren't even wearing shoes, and they chased this thing down the block. (laughs) (laughs) That is dedication. Oh, yeah. Pure pure dedication, but, like, uh, basically, it's one of the... Probably best investigated cases that you'll ever read. You can go on to QFOS's website, and there's a great write-up in there. I think they housed it under their abduction papers, and there's kind of a question. Oh, interesting. Maybe yeah. maybe Obarski was abducted because there's a little bit of a time difference there, but, uh, you know, can't be totally sure. But, uh, yeah, that was it's one very straight and, and this is a populated area heavily populated area north bergen is a decent sized city and right. not to mention you're right across from like one of the biggest cities in the world <laughs> yeah exactly i know everyone thinks these things happen in very you know rural areas but no we got them here in the city as well right yeah absolutely i mean you you talked about having uh, a sighting, a second sighting yourself. I, I, I saw the uh, mm-hmm. the UFOmet video. Yeah, dude. Yeah, that was my second and only other UFO sighting that I can really think of, at least. But um, yeah, it was so cool to have um to have Jim here and Carl to be there on the rooftop with me, where I, 
where, you know, right off the block where I saw this thing. Um, but yeah, we see them here in the city all the time. The problem is there's so much aircraft over us that mm-hmm. like, you never know. You just never know. I remember I downloaded an app where you could see every plane in the air and I just flicked it on one random night and there was literally, I think it says something like 300 flights right oh, above me. Oh my God. It's, I, I don't know how that many planes can be coming in and out of both either LaGuardia, JFK, Newark, I, I don't know, um, without crashing. <laughs> it's beyond me. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't even want to wrap my head around that. Yeah. That's wild. It's too much, man. But yeah, whatever I saw that night, I I still think it was probably a satellite, just its movement and the way it, it, I tracked it and everything. But yeah, it definitely like shot up into the sky and kind of disappeared. So that's when I was like, uh, what? Like either my eyes played tricks on me or this satellite had some sort of like <laughs> thrust to it beyond what it had. So I don't know. Um, but this isn't about me, Rob. This is about <laughs> <laughs> these poor people in uh, New Jersey running barefoot after a UFO. <laughs> yeah, Crazy, yeah. I mean, dude. It, it it's amazing that they were actually able to find as many eyewitnesses to this, and right, like, right? It, they just and they did it old school. They went door to door. They bugged everybody that they could at the at the Stonehenge and. Yep. Um, you know, they, they just tracked down leads. There was one, I believe one of the members of that family was, um, they were at a UFO talk that somebody was given. It might've been Ted Blocker himself, but, uh, they came up and said, Oh, we, we saw something, you know, on this day and we, we chased it down the street. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point though. Like doing the due diligence when it comes to investigating these things. I know you had John Tenney on your show recently and he brought up a good point. He said, you know, I had these humanoid sightings happening in this town, so what did I do? I went door-to-door and tried to ask other people if they'd seen anything. And, like, you never hear about people doing that anymore. It's either Mm-mm. posted on Facebook, hey, anyone see this? Or, you know, you just hope that someone finds you. But, no, right. these people are going out there and doing the work. Yeah, it's important because, I mean, like, that when you go and knock on somebody's door, you're showing them that you're taking the time that this is important and that what they have to say is important. So it's, it's kind of, it's, it's important to do because uh, what you see that MUFON investigators do, and I understand they don't have time to get out and investigate like a bunch of cases, but most of the time it's an email of, phone call yep. and that's it yeah yeah i know it's the it's the digital age we live in it's good and bad at times but even i find myself doing the same thing i'm like uh i don't want to go to you know <laughs> i don't even want to go to new jersey to interview someone <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> but no put the work in guys put the work in um well here's another one you recently covered on the our strange skies podcast rob is um Terry Lovelace, this case. I recently had him on a bonus episode of my show, um, and it was an interview conducted by a longtime listener of mine, Daniel Allen Jones. I had him as sort of a correspondent out at Contact in the Desert, 
and that's where he uh, he got to meet Terry Lovelace. So a shout out to Daniel for his awesome correspondence work, first of all. Um, but I know that you you did a really good dive into this case. So would you mind maybe running us through the basics of it? I, I know that's probably hard to do <laughs> if there are any <laughs> basics to it um, and your impressions of this case. I know we're going to get him on eventually. Terry's kind of an interesting person just because he represents this new age of experiencers and the way that they get their stories out there. And and that's through self-publishing. So if you look at uh, a lot of experiencer um, stories, they are through self-published works. Um, Sherry Wilde self-published her book, I believe. Um, there's a there's a few others that come to mind, but uh, Terry's kind of leading the pack, and uh, at least lately. And I think the reason is is because his story is very strange. It's very kind of relatable to, but mm-hmm. there's also not a, a a ton of detail at times, and then it's kind of juxtaposed with uh, the, a lot of detail of about one incident but for terry the story kind of begins in october of 2012 terry was and he probably still is an avid jogger and it's kind of funny to read in his book how his dad has objections about him jogging but um <laughs> uh, i mean it was it was a different time the early 1980s jogging was new and uh he kind of asked terry a good question why do you want to run if no one's chasing you? And it's kind of this very prescient, ubiquitous question. Like, why the heck would you want to do that? What the heck are you running from? And then he he proceeds to lay out that um, in October of 2012, he um, often when he was running his right knee, there was a spot above his right knee that would often go numb, which is not something you hear <laughs> happening to most runners and he he initially had it uh, checked out and the doctor basically said well if uh, it ain't broke don't worry about it <laughs> if it doesn't cause you pain it's not a problem so he goes on runs for years and years and years and years and then one morning he wakes up with this incredible pain in his leg and his wife sheila drives him to the uh, emergency room they take an x-ray and they find basically a – it's like a um, – looks like a piece of metal, mm-hmm. a th- long, thin piece of metal. And they also find this very strange, like, circular pattern of what they call bone. But it's, like, laid out in this, like, floral-type pattern. So for – this causes Terry to kind of remember a lot of – strange incidents from his past that goes back to when he was eight years old and even younger, he would talk about these experiences with with what he called the monkey men. And they were these shadowy figures that would dart around his bedroom uh, on certain nights. And when they would come out into the light from like the moon or something, they would have these, they looked very much like a short bipedal, um, kind of like a gray, but their face was more monkey-like, and their okay. eyes were yellow. And he, they would always ask him, you know, come out and play with us. And Terry wasn't <laughs> having any of it, so he'd just scream his, scream his lungs out. And this would happen for you know a good portion of his childhood. 
and he would have, you know, a few UFO experiences. There was one during the day when uh, he was just outside playing with a bow and arrow, and there's a UFO that just kind of comes over and hangs around him for a little while. He lays back on the grass and watches it for a little bit, and then it shoots off. Then uh, a couple months later, he has this sees this series of lights that are coming through underneath his drapes and he shoots out of bed. He's kind of apathetic at first, which is something, you know, a lot of UFO witnesses kind of report Mm -hmm. being this like indifference. And he's been teased a lot by his sister and he kind of wants proof. So he can hear this low humming sound also that's coming through with it. And it vibrates the entire room so much that uh, a bottle plane that's on his dresser just falls off onto the floor. He's like, if it stays there, I know this is proof. Well, okay. And then <laughs> and then he goes to the window and actually gets a look at this thing. And it's, a you know, your classic saucer UFO shooting out to these green and yellow lights and, and such. And he's like... I'll sweeten the pot by messing up the drapes, and that way I'll know this really happened. So, does that, he wakes up the next morning, and the way that he describes it is, like, the moment he hits, his head hits the pillow, it's like a a switch, and then then it's daylight, and Mm. he just wakes up, like he didn't get any sleep at all. And the model plane's still on the floor, the drapes are still messed up, so that's proof for him. But, um, as he progresses... He uh, he has less sightings as his teenage years go by, and after he graduates from high school, he enlists in the uh, Air Force. Yep. And he's basically an army medic. That's uh, what he specialized in. That's what he got training in. And he's stationed at Whiteman Air Force Base. He um, he's a medic there with a with a guy named Toby. He's a African American man and. They become really great friends, and one night in 75, it's January, so it's really cold as hell out there, you get, they get a call that uh, they need to go retrieve a guy who fell off of a silo, and where they were is a, um, it's a uh, missile silo. Uh, I believe they had nuclear ordnance there. Yeah, I think and, so. Yeah, and... They pull up and they see this uh, these military checkpoints and a bunch of people just standing around, which is really odd. And Toby gets out of the out of the vehicle and he goes up and he's like, he comes back and says, "You got to come check this out." And above this silo is this UFO. It's just hanging out there and it's there for maybe like five more minutes before it shoots off and they retrieve the guy. So there's another UFO sighting for him. <laughs> And then a couple of years later, the they both have another UFO sighting, and in like it's around the same time in January, and a couple months later, Toby has this idea that they should go camping. Now these are two city guys; they know know jack about camping, so <laughs> it's just like one of those like impulse things that happens, and like it sounds it, like a uh, an eighties comedy movie with like. Uh... What's his name? The guy from uh, Home Improvement or something. <laughs> like Tim Allen. Yeah. <laughs> it's turning out to be like a, a buddy movie or something. Yeah, I can I can see that. Um, <laughs> but this 
quickly becomes like a joke, quickly moves from being a joke to this obsession. Yeah, yeah. And they all basically, and both of them basically kind of like beg, steal, or borrow what they need to go on this camping trip. Uh, Terry's going to bring his uh, camera. He's going to take some nature shots and all that stuff. And Toby's got his binoculars and, you know, they they got a tent from somebody else and they got a bunch of hot dogs and stuff. And they picked this place called the Devil's Den, which is in uh, northwest Arkansas. It's a state park. And um, I, it's, um, you know, it's got a history. There's some weird stuff going on there. Yeah. Um, people have gone missing. It's, uh, it's a missing 411 kind of territory stuff. Okay. And it isn't long before their amateurism comes out. So they they pull in and they pick the spot where they're technically not supposed to be. It's illegal to camp where they're camping, but, you know, they didn't care. And instead of setting up their camp, they just go for a hike. Okay. (laughs) They go (laughs) for a hike. Yeah, mistake one. Um, And uh, they come back a little while later and... Yeah, they'll set up the camp. Well, they don't do that. They just, like, you know, zone out and, and pass out. Mistake for, two. <laughs> yeah, for a few hours. And, and they wake up in the in the middle of the night. It's dark out. And, uh, yeah, so <laughs> they they quickly set up camp. Their, their car isn't very far away. And what they find is that most of the provisions that they had, they didn't bring with them. They forgot to bring with them. <sighs> okay. It's amateur hour here. And, um but they set up their tent they they set up uh they get a fire going and they've got they still got hot dogs and stuff that uh you know make themselves an evening meal and they proclaim themselves like kings of the forest it's kind of funny <laughs> damn city folk millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Yep. And um, things start to get weird pretty quick after that. Uh, Terry first notices that the um, there's no wildlife sounds coming from anywhere. There's no crickets. There's no nothing. The forest has gone completely silent. And it's Toby that sees these three lights in the sky uh, off on the, I believe, the western horizon. Kind of low. Definitely look a little too low to be stars. But uh, they, they just stare at it and they kind of like, you know, pass it off. Ah, it's nothing. <laughs> and then these stars start to move up over the horizon, they, up and over. And then they just come directly over their campsite. Now, these guys should be like shit in a brick, but they're basically like looking up and they're amazed by it. And they're at one point... And and we know this is a mistake, and I want to make this very clear. You do not signal flashlights or signal UFOs with a flashlight. You just don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Didn't ha- didn't end well for the Allagash guys. Didn't end well for these guys either. Yes. T- don't take that from the playbook of Stephen Greer, people. Jesus no. Christ. No, no. If you take anything away from Stephen Greer, it's just that he's fraudulent. Just let it go. But, uh, <laughs> but this UFO... Um, after he flashes this flashlight three times, it drops this white beam of light down that it's there for maybe like 30 seconds and disappears. And then, boom, there's a blue pencil thin light that just darts around their camp. Now I'm like freaking out here, but they weren't. They were pretty calm about it. So that light disappears and then the UFO moves away. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. I don't I don't think I'd be able to sleep that night, but they go to sleep right after. You know, um as as you know, any rational person I wouldn't do, but mm-hmm. yeah, but um it's Terry that wakes up a, a, what feels like a couple hours later and he sees this light that's flooding into their tent. And he can see Toby, he's kneeling by the the uh, the flap to the tent. And he's, like, crying, and he's looking out, and Terry goes to grab the flashlight and see what's going on out there. And Toby just bats him away and says, no, they're out there. And he can hear figures walking around out there. He can (sighs) see this really bright light, and eventually his curiosity gets the better of him. And he throws open the flap, and what he sees is this UFO. It's in this field not far from their campsite taking up like the whole field because it was that big and he can see 10 to 15 short figures that are walking towards it they're basically like the size of a child and they walk into this white beam of light that's projecting down to it and the way that he describes it they just dissolved so uh both the guys are kind of in this intense pain they're very thirsty. They didn't bring water with them. 
because you know we're yeah. amateurs. Yeah, and amateur hours still, even through still, all this. Yep, and uh, they make the decision very quickly to get the hell out of there. So they drive the hours. It's like it was, I, I believe, it was like six hours away from where they were living, and everybody was surprised to see them back. Uh, Terry's wife Sheila, upon just seeing him took him to the emergency room because he was in that bad of shape as um, he was running a fever of 104. He, his face was very puffy Mm -hmm. and his eyes were almost swollen shut. So yeah, they ran him to the hospital. He was in there for a few days while he was in there. He got a visit from a guy from the air force office of special investigations and we all know a Fosse. We know we know mm. players from a Fosse. We know who Rick Doty is. <laughs> oh boy, he's involved with this shit. <laughs> no, he's not. But okay, you know, okay. you can't, you can't, you can't not hear uh, OSI and not think Rick Doty. <laughs> right. And the only reason I use the word shit is because of that name. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love him to death. I know he might even be listening to this. Um, but yeah, not to take away from this incident whatsoever by using the word shit. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Just when yeah. I hear Rick Doty, I get all fired up. I think a lot of people get fired up, but uh, you know, that's that's to be expected. It is. It, it really is. But um they basically interview him. Uh, the guy, the is uh, Agent Gregory. You know, because we're not using full names here. But, this is uh, Shield, baby, Nick Fury. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, sets up a tape recorder, starts interviewing, and and basically asks, you know, why did you come back so quickly? And uh, you know, the the basic standard stuff and. Yeah. They were really harping on whether Terry had taken photos of anything. And Terry forgot his camera because, you know, the only thing I think they remembered was the tent, some hot dogs, and um, I believe Toby's binoculars. (laughs) Okay, okay. The essentials. Yeah, but uh, Terry was, uh, he was an amateur photographer. He had a studio in his house, but uh, he didn't bring the camera with him and just kept pressing him. But uh, he's in the hospital for about three or four days, and when he gets out, he's reassigned to another unit where all he does is paints pieces of plywood. Gee, okay. Wow. Uh, he, he paints these sheets of plywood over and over again. They're basically just giving him grunt work to keep him out of their hair and all that stuff. And this happens a lot, man. Like when yeah. military people have these encounters and UFOs, they send them different places in the world and give them menial tasks, hoping they won't start talking about it with other people. Like, get them alone. That's what you yep. got to do. Get them alone. Yep. And uh, I think it was like a couple days before... He was set to be reassigned again, and Agent Gregory comes back, and basically he forces Terry to consent to hypnosis. Well, mm. okay, let's yeah. let's do that. So they explore the night in Devil's Den and what happened, and basically Terry recounts being taken aboard this craft, standing in a line full of people that are waiting to undergo procedures. And there's also this short, what he basically calls a hybrid woman standing with him. 
he recognizes her as being someone who has been with him his entire life with these experiences and such, like many abductees report. Mm -hmm. And he also reports walking by a wall of like aquarium tanks that had very strange reptilian looking beings in them. He talked about how there were human crew on this ship that uh, all wore these like brown coveralls with an orange insignia on them. And they worked beside the short gray beings. And he eventually was brought to this one room where they performed a procedure on him and brought him back. And, uh, that's really the only insight into like m- any of his abduction experiences that he has. Uh, he he never talks about uh, exploring these monkey men encounters when he was a kid or anything like that. And after that, he continues to have these lifelong experiences. Eventually, he's reassigned to a unit where he's basically a medic again. Toby, he loses contact with him for a while, but he tells us in the book that Toby died a homeless man in the 90s in Michigan. Okay. Yeah. But um, fast forward to 2017, and Terry starts talking about his experiences. He starts appearing at a couple of cons, and after he starts doing that, he experiences this dramatic weight loss. Terry used to be kind of a big guy over 200 pounds. And nowadays I, th- I think he weighs somewhere in the neighborhood of like 120 or something Holy like that. Cow. Yeah. And that is extreme. Yeah. And one night, it, not long after he gave a presentation at a conference in I believe Houston, mm-hmm. he woke up in his living room across from, sitting in his living room. He went to bed upstairs. But, uh, yeah, he woke up sitting in the living room across from this woman that he's had these lifelong experiences with. And she's wearing very human clothes, along with a wig and some sunglasses. And he kind of makes fun of her for a little bit for wearing the wig, but, you know, (laughs) you'll have that. She's trying. She's trying. She is trying. But, um, you know, he, he basically asks her questions about... You know, these beings, you know, being in his life for as long as they have. And basically she says that if he talks, keeps to talking about his experiences, one, they're going to have to take the implants that are in his legs, which he didn't know he had two. He thought he only had one, but turns out he had two. It's a two for one deal, yeah. It's a two for one deal, you know, on sale that week, but... (laughs) They also said that the military would kill him, which hasn't happened because he's still alive. But um, and, and they also basically said that they'd never see him again. So Terry made the decision to keep talking about it. And about a week later, he woke up to incredible pain in his legs again. He he had these like red kind of puncture marks on both of his legs and about a day later there was a a bruise that appeared on both legs that looked like that flower pattern that was seen on the x-ray in 2012 and that's uh that's pretty much where terry's story leads you it's interesting it's kind of 
devoid of details at sometimes, but it's really intriguing and it gives a lot of the the conspiratorially minded people something to bite on, especially when he talks about being on the ship in 1977. Right. Wow. Yes. Well, you know what I have, I was given the book by the publisher, um, that was working with him on, on getting this out to the public. And I've spoken to Terry, uh, I think once through email, he is an extremely nice guy, very mm-hmm. smart, very insightful, but this this case is just it's there's so many gaps where conspiracy people can fill those in. So I don't know, man. I don't know. I struggle with this one. I'm gonna be honest. It, there's a lot going on, um, but hopefully I can get him on to get some more detail. But wow, yeah, you did a good job with that one. Well, I appreciate it, man. And uh, I guess he's working on a second book. So maybe we'll get some more insight on those kind of details. I don't know, but uh, maybe, maybe, yeah. But uh, yeah, there's definitely we we need a little more. <laughs> we need some more from you, Terry. If you're listening, please give us some more to work with here. Yep. Awesome. Well, Rob, going coming to today, um, we have these videos that came out, one of which is known as the gimbal video, and a lot of researchers have been working on this lately, trying to figure out when and where this happened. And they're pretty much landing on the East Coast, this gimbal video. Um, If anyone's seen it, it's the one where the uh, gun camera footage, where the craft seems to be rotating in midair. It's the one that I know Unidentified, the TV show, uses as their their main, uh, what would you call it, like featured image, even though they doctored it. A little made it more saucer shaped. Um, yep. Anyways, I'm getting I'm getting too detailed into the craft. The gimbal video. We think that this happened off of the USS Roosevelt uh, in the early to mid 2000s, and um, even in the Middle East, this thing possibly may have been seen. But you found something that happened with the USS Roosevelt uh, that was. That happened a while ago. So what is up with the USS Roosevelt? Why are they the ones to track all these UFOs? And what is this case he came across? Right. So the interesting thing about this um, USS Roosevelt, it's not the first USS Roosevelt. This is actually the second. Um, It's a uh, Nimitz-class carrier, which is a more advanced carrier. Um, But before that, there is the Essex-class carrier, uh, USS Franklin D. Roosevelt. Um, And basically, it has a history of UFO sightings going back to the early 50s. Um, And it starts in September of 1952 with Operation Mainbrace, which was a NATO exercise that um, a lot of – there was like – I forget how many nations took part in it. It was probably about 10 or 12, but supposedly 85,000, like, servicemen were a part of this exercise. And, like, from the start, they started to experience UFO activity. There were some that reported UFOs coming out of the water and flying over their heads, some of them. Uh, just basic flybys of UFOs, but uh, one of them was the USS Franklin D. Roosevelt. And basically on September 20th, 1952, they were taking pictures of the area, and they see this object in the sky, 
It's in broad daylight, and it just flies over their uh, ship, and they take pictures of it. They were, they were supposedly took three pictures of the thing, and it was just uh, kind of, you know, that's what it was. It was three pictures. It was interesting, though, really yeah. interesting pictures. You can Google them. They're out there. Um, I'd also like to note that uh, the crewmen of this ship called it this uh, – the USS Franklin D. Roosevelt, Swanky Frankie. Um, <laughs> but uh, the most dramatic report of UFOs comes from 1958. The uh, Franklin Roosevelt was down in the Caribbean. It wasn't far from Cuba. And they saw this light that was basically tailing their boat. And... Eventually, it came speeding by, and it got so close to the boat that you could actually see the object. You could see windows on the thing, and you could see figures in the windows looking out. Wow, okay. And the object just hovered right there above the ship for uh, maybe a minute or two before it just disappeared. Um, And this report comes from a guy named Chester Grzynski. He was 18 years old at the time, but he kind of just basically tried to find anybody else that had, you know, seen this after it had gone down because there was a cover-up. The CIA came on board this ship investigating gambling. Really? Of all things, okay. Yeah, and, you know, they basically just told everybody to shut up about this, and, you know, it became this huge, giant cover-up, and... Uh, Chester, he basically, he tried to track down anybody that he could that remembered seeing this thing. Now, if you Google, it's, uh, I just Googled Operation Main, uh, Main Brace UFO. Mm -hmm. And you, and you go through the, the image search results, what you'll see is this, uh, it's a sketch that somebody drew of it's right to Charles or Chester Grzynski's back. And above him, you can see like the tower of the carrier and right next to the tower and slightly above it is this object. And they drew it to scale and everything. And it's a, it's a pretty great image. Mm, I love yeah. it. But yeah, the, I, I don't know. I, Apparently, according to Brzezinski, there were like eight separate UFO incidents that the USS mm-hmm. uh, all throughout the 50s and 60s. And it was decommissioned in 1977. That was when the Nimitz class Franklin Roosevelt was uh, set sail. Okay. So apparently something about Franklin D. Roosevelt screams UFOs. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what weird. it is, man. <laughs> I mean, he was cool and all, but come on. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I found that really fascinating because, again, the Roosevelt is um, it's becoming a buzzword now in the UFO community because of all the activity with UFOs involved with it. So I was so happy to hear that you found that. And I'm also happy to know it wasn't the same ship because, <laughs> my God, if there's ever been, like, UFO bait, now we know it's the USS Roosevelt. Just throw that thing out in the water and you're going to get some UFOs. Yeah, pretty much. You know, it's it's the bait that every ufologist needs. And it's kind of funny because when you read about the history of the first ship uh, in 77, they were in talks to actually keep it going. Mm-hmm. 
they uh, people were afraid that uh, Jimmy Carter was just going to, you know, keep this thing going forever. So they basically said, no, nope, we're taking it out of commission. They sold it to somebody for $2.1 million and it was scrapped. Ah, <laughs> oh, damn it. Yep. Damn you, Carter. Damn Jimmy Carter. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, wrapping things up here, Rob, um, take a good sip, man, because of your drink there, because this is what we're going to end with here. You were recently on the Mad Scientist podcast with Chris Cogswell, a very good friend of both of ours. And mm-hmm. uh, this was a brutally honest conversation, man, about the UFO news coming out lately. So my big question to you is, where do you stand today on this mainstream coverage of UFOs? And what do you think is going on with uh, To the Stars, their new show? Give me what you got, man, because people are very divided. And this is this has really put a dent in the UFO community, both good and bad. So what do you got, man? Be honest with us here. So I'm very skeptical these days now. I've I've kind of been a little more I've gotten a little more skeptical as time has gone on. Mm-hmm. And for me, there are things that to the Stars Academy does or doesn't do that kind of goes against it, that being a, a legitimate operation. Not to say that there aren't trying or stuff like that, but like there's a, if you're talking about science and UFOs, there are ways to do this. When you go onto the, the To The Stars Academy website and you look at the videos, you look at uh, the gimbal video, the Nimitz video, the GoFast video, what you find on there is not an explanation of how they came to their conclusions. Mm-hmm. What they tell you is this is what this is and this is what our conclusions are. Well, how did you arrive at that? And to give you a kind of an analogy, if you're in math class in high school and you're basically – this is basically to the Stars Academy writing down the answers without <laughs> telling you how they got there. And that's a big problem for me because if if the teacher hands that paper back, what's it going to say? What's it going to say? Show 60, your work. Yeah, 65. Show your work. And I don't think to the Stars Academy is doing the best job of showing their work. Mm-hmm very well uh i'm skeptical oh man how do i how do i lay this out you know in in a concise way i I think it's hard it it is hard but i i just don't know what the hell they're doing Mm -hmm. i really don't know what the hell they're doing and like they're giving you nuggets of information that they're tantalizing but they ultimately don't lead to anything like they announced the Adam Project last year. What what has come of that? Right. Nothing. Well, here's the other thing. You bring up a good point. We know for a fact that Lou Elizondo, he's even stated this in the TV show, Unidentified, that he knows more than what he can say on the mm-hmm. show and what he can tell civilians. So you have this weird, like, purgatory where the investigator in charge of all this knows more than he's telling the public so that's a problem like what why why should we listen or trust you when you know more than you're telling us it's hard because i i honestly think like he's a cool guy i think um he's doing some good work and i i do believe that he wants answers but he's got answers and he can't Mm -hmm. tell us that's a problem and not only that 
how many to the stars members are former government officials that can't say anything? Chris Mellon, Steve Justice, yeah. Hal Podoff. He can't say crap about a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of them can't, and especially if. A lot of these people are former Bass employees or are still Bass employees. They're not going to say anything. Yeah, I kind of had high hopes, but it's just like you're tempering this with non-disclosure agreements that you can't give anything up. Yeah, and now you've got people like Mick West on doing. You know, I think he's doing pretty good work. I I, I can honestly say. I wasn't convinced by the GoFast video to begin with, and mm-hmm. now I really don't think it is a UFO. I think it really is a balloon. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I've I've thought that for a while now, too. Um, but you're right. You, you know, we get blinded by the, the excitement that comes when this topic gets mainstream coverage. And when we have people like Tom DeLonge, like, really, I, I respect the hell out of the guy for what he's doing. I honestly do. And Mm -hmm. I think, like, he's done some great work, and he's assembled an amazing team. But you always come back to this fact that all those people involved with To The Stars know more than what they're letting on. And that is a problem, because Mm -hmm. we're getting this narrative from To The Stars. Now, here's my thing, too, and our good friend Jason McClellan always says, you don't have to listen to To The Stars. Like... They, they're one cog in this huge machine of this phenomena. They clearly have an angle, and that's military, and that this is a threat, and we need to be ready for it. So there you go right there. Like, To the Stars has been pretty upfront. Even Tom DeLonge saying, I want to paint a good picture of the military-industrial complex. And he said that from the very start. So anyone who argues that, he said that from the start. So there's that yeah. right there. Um, but like we said... This stuff is only military, and that's only a small fraction of what's going on with these phenomena. Yeah, exactly. It cuts out, like, I would say 85 to 90% of the rest of this phenomenon. Yeah. Like, it, it, it cuts out a lot. And I feel, and I've always felt that when somebody controls the field of perception here, because mm-hmm. it always comes down to that. You need to start looking other places, not just at this one main body and their noble intentions. You start to look at other places, which is why I will spend hours digging through old issues of Flying Saucer Review. Those still have value. They're still valuable to us in what they tell us about UFOs. Like when Lou Elizondo is saying – well, there's a clear pattern of UFOs and military installations and, and nuclear installations. Like, Lou, we've known that for decades. No shit, but, dude. Yeah. I, oh, okay. I'm going to – all right. I got a vent here, man. <laughs> that last <laughs> episode, um, first of all, I love seeing some of the witness they interviewed. Larry Gessner uh, first came forward in my book. I must say that. I have to defend this. Uh, in my book, uh, Somewhere in the Skies with his UFO encounter, To the Stars claims this is the first time he's ever come forward. Um, it's TV. I get it. I get it. Um, but they went through the whole Rick Doty and Benowitz thing, which was interesting. And then, okay, who is this mysterious General Halt or um, what was he? Base Commander Halt with the mm-hmm. Rendlesham case. We'd never heard of him before. Yeah. So <laughs> I think it's a little offensive that they're covering the nuclear 
uh, angle to all this when we've known this for so long. Look at Faded Giants. Look at all the work by Hastings and all these guys out there. And it's almost like a a slap in the face that, oh, Lou Elizondo suddenly made this connection. Come on, dude. It, it, it bothers me. And, like, I, what you find in this field right now is a lot of people trying to, like, and, and I'm not, like, discounting you because you definitely did talk to Larry first. But, like, you're finding a lot of that, like, people, you know, saying that we had these people long before you did. It, it's it, It's absolutely ridiculous. Like, what I want to know is why is nobody, in, in terms of the David Fravor sighting, why is nobody talking to Paco Chirichi? And right. I guarantee you, most people probably don't know who Paco Chirichi is or even know what I'm talking about. And, like, I know that Jeremy Corbell, God respect him, thinks that he was breaking that uh, Fravor story to begin with. Mm-hmm. Paco Chirichi broke that two years before he did. So um, why is nobody talking to him? <laughs> Yeah, again, it's all about perception and narrative. And, you know, I think uh, you make a good point, though. Like, uh, the ego got the best of me when I saw the Larry Gessner case involved with this. I'm like, hey, I was the first to break that. But I don't know that. Someone else may have interviewed Larry long before that. But that's not what it's about, I think. Um, You're right. We need to, like, keep digging, finding all these people. Look at, like, Dave Beattie and all these people he's working mm-hmm. with to right. uh, to find all these people that were on the Roosevelt. It's amazing the work that the UFO field is doing. Keith Basterfield. I mean, the, the list is endless of the people who are doing way, way more work than to the Stars Academy. Right, and and my big problem with them is that they're cutting the rest of us out. They're yeah. cutting us, uh, the people that have done this research. So it's like to the Stars Academy is like hitting the reset button. Why do we need to hit the reset button when we have literature from decades and decades that are saying the same things that you think are revelations now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sucks, man. And at the same time, like I understand you're bringing presenting this to the mainstream who haven't been into all this like we have, but like. You, like use us ask us for help like we can, mm-hmm. we're 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 all for you i still am a big fan of what they're doing bringing this to the mainstream trying to destigmatize the phenomena and the topic but at the same time like tom delong from the beginning told the ufo community read between the lines guys like you know what i'm really trying to get here well you're not showing that man because you've completely cut out the entire ufo community mm-hmm. and we were the ones yeah. defending you from the start right and like, look at look at the UFO community now, and and how things are coming back. Yeah, things are cyclical again. Why are we talking about some goddamn alien autopsy video uh, again that we know is not real? Don't get me started. <laughs> like, like, why are we? And and some topics are worth revisiting, but there are topics that nobody has even bothered to cover, which is what I love to do. When I first, like, the first appearance I ever made on this podcast. And we talked about the men in black. I was yeah. like, I, I really want to dig into this stuff. And I looked at the Herbert Hopkins encounter and I'm like, this is really strange. What the hell was he looking into? Because it, it felt like it was a question nobody had asked. Yeah. So I find it in this book and I'm like, why is nobody talking about this case? It literally happened like two weeks before Travis Walton was abducted. And it's far more insane than Travis Walton's story. Why is nobody talking about this? Mm. And it's those stories that really 
they need to be told because they've never really been told before. They've they've existed in the annals of these UFO journals that sometimes people pick up and and read through and you know if you got them lying around. There's a, the whole like internet archive. Like if you go to it's either New Fork or New Fours. It's really confusing at a certain time. New Fours is in Canada, I believe. Yeah. There is a database of issues of Flying Saucer Review from the time it started in the 50s up until it folded in the early 2000s. They're all on there. Go read through them. There's some crazy cases in there. The, 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 some of the bonus case, bonus episodes that I've done have come from these cases. There's Everybody talks about the Mothman sightings, and they don't talk about this one case from uh, I believe South Carolina, Gaffney, mm-hmm. of these two cops. They were out one night during this meteor shower, and they were patrolling an area. Uh, they, it was an abandoned area, and they see this UFO, and it just comes straight down in front of their car. And this really short being gets out, and it starts asking them questions. Nobody <laughs> talks about that case. It was a case that John Keel reported and it's like, why is that not talked about when people talk about the Mothman? Yeah, you see, and, and that's... It, it's it's those, yeah, it's those cases that like, God, I, I find more value in them than I do in a lot of what To the Stars Academy is doing, and I know that's going to upset a lot of people. I just don't care anymore. <laughs> yep, I don't either, man. There's no time for it, and I've been sort of taken to task with Ryan, like make a decision. Are you for it or are you against it? Look, I wrote a shining review of the first episode of Unidentified because I thought it was fucking slick and beautiful and in- insightful and it was great. Um it was again, it was for a new audience. So mm-hmm. that's great. But as the show has gone on, I-, I get what they're doing. It's just it's a recycling of everything we already know. Yeah. Um, that's not to say that they have not made strides and some progression in terms of the military acknowledging this or this or that. But at the same time, dude, it's the UFO researchers working in the shadows that are really doing the hard work. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to keep that in mind. Do not stop what you're doing. The Keith Basterfields out there, the Dave Beatties, everyone out there who's doing that legwork and to the stars kind of eh, takes away from that, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, just keep and, doing your work. Yeah, and I, I got to say, God bless John Greenwald for doing what he is doing because oh, he took a I, bashing. He did. He has taken a bashing. He has done it well. And he is he's doing honest work. Yep. You know, and and like, I'll be honest, I have never seen Alejandro Rojas as angry as he was. Oof. Oh, my God. But, that dude never gets angry. No, I've never seen Alejandro Rojas angry at all. And and I was watching that Twitter thread and I'm like, oh, my God. Yep. Really? Hey, hey, if anything, this whole thing that's happened in the past couple of years has made UFO researchers passionate again. And we lost that. 
for a long time. So, you know what? While it might be divisive, it's also really, really getting our flames going. So I hope we can use that passion, work together to find answers, because I agree with a lot of what the Young Guns are doing. I agree a lot with what people like John Greenwald are doing. And we are getting some incredible journalism coming out of Tyler Rogueway, Alejandro, John Mm -hmm. Greenwald. They're all doing amazing work. So, you know what? If that's what it comes down to, the way that this topic is covered, I want to read everything that all of those people have to say. Because we're at the end of the day, we are all in this together. We're just trying to find answers. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if people can use To The Stars Academy as a gateway drug, that, more power to you. If it, if it you know, pushes you to look into this stuff more, then that's great. Yeah, that's fan. That's fantastic. Oh yeah, man. TTSA is the marijuana to the cocaine. Yeah, like I like to think of myself as the cocaine right now. Yeah, you come to my <laughs> podcast, you're getting the cocaine. You you're are getting, getting it. it. Yeah, <laughs> the our strange cocaine podcast. Yeah, it's coming to you. <laughs> well, speaking of that, dude, wrapping things up here. You're back. The show is back. I can't believe it. We were all waiting so so patiently but you are back and the floodgates have opened new music new formatting what can we expect moving forward with the our strange skies podcast what are you going to be covering so you're gonna get you're gonna get lonnie zamora we're finally we're finally batting down the hatches probably get lonnie zamora in around september we uh we're finishing up the final uh, portions of the research. Uh, we're gonna do a deep dive into Roswell. We're gonna do. We're gonna cover the timeline. We're gonna cover the theories. We're gonna cover cover Philip J. Corso's crazy crap. All that good stuff. We're gonna. We're going to Brazil. We're gonna be talking about Brazil. We're gonna be talking about. Man, so many, so, so many great things much. coming up. Wow, that's awesome, dude. Well, I, I for one can say I'm so happy you're back. Uh, a vacation well needed from the research that you've done. So it's good to see you're coming back in full force. And uh, where can we find the show and everything you're up to? So if you want to, you know, stalk me on the internet, I'm out there on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, search for Our Strange Skies. Uh, you can listen to the podcast anywhere at this point. Just search for us. Uh, mm-hmm. And we've got a back catalog, but uh, we're coming strong. We're, we're, telling the, we're telling the great stories, the yes. great stories that need to be told. Absolutely. And uh, what's the Patreon to? Uh, yes, uh, patreon.com slash Our Strange Skies. At the uh, $5 a month level, you get some great bonus episodes. That's kind of where we put our uh, um, our meltdowns, which if you don't know what a meltdown is, it's basically where uh, myself and some guests watch really weird UFO documentaries and movies and stuff like that, and then we just tear it apart. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. We, uh, we recently uh, watched... Uh, UFOs, the best evidence ever, one and two, with the uh, ever, ever, the greatest of the 90s, Jonathan Frakes. Yes. Uh, so we we, uh, we ripped into the UFO footage in that. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> I remember those, man. There were some freaky looking UFOs in there. Mostly balloons, but some of them yeah. were pretty astounding. Yeah, some, some of them were. Uh, I think we... 
I think we found three of them that were good in that thing, but you know what? You, you'll get hours of entertainment. Hours of entertainment. Oh, Jonathan Frakes, you are you're sorely missed in the UFO community. Alien Autopsy, too, right? Yes, absolutely. Alien Autopsy. Yeah. <laughs> Like, he was uh, he was all over the place in the '90s, man. He was doing that. Uh, he uh, what, what the heck was that other show that he had? Oh where he yeah, was... um, Beyond Belief. Yes, yep. <laughs> that was a oh, fun one. So great, so great. <laughs> I love it, man. Well, hey, I can't thank you enough for kicking back a root beer with me today here on UFO Happy Hour. These are always my favorite episodes. So thank you so much, Rob Christofferson, for coming back on Somewhere in the Skies. Thanks for having me again, man. It's always a blast. And happy World UFO Day. Yeah. Woo! Produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. To learn more, visit EntertainmentOnePodcast.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.